My name is Brad, and I'm the lead pastor here at Hillside Church, and I want to thank you for listening to one of our messages from Hillside Church. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of Scripture is still speaking today. So if it's me speaking or if it's someone else, we pray that the message you are about to hear would allow you to know God, know His hope, know His purpose, and know His power. Enjoy the message. If you have your Bibles, um, you can turn to Ezra chapter 2. Um, that's that's the, the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. Ezra chapter 2 um, is a massively detailed list of family names and numbers. It, it's a long chapter, and it's a lot of names, and it's a lot of numbers. Um, it's, it's ultimately what it is, is it's the list. Last week we talked about how in Ezra chapter 1, um, the people are released, the, the king of Persia releases the, 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 the Judeans, the people from Judah, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. The, the, the king of the world says, God spoke to me and told me to send you home and to fund the rebuilding. And so, so it's this amazing moment, this miracle that takes place in the life of, of the people. And so then what happens in Ezra chapter 2 is essentially we get the results of somebody very gifted in administration. Um, somebody who, who is very gifted in keeping a detailed list as, as we not just get rounded numbers, we don't just get kind of, well, it's about this, we get very detailed names and numbers. And it's absolutely the kind of passage that causes our eyes to gloss over and our minds to wander as we make an attempt to read through the chapter. And before you know it, if, if you're like me, sometimes when you get into these passages, before you know it, you realize, hey, I think I'm at the end of this chapter, but I'm not sure that I read a word of it. That your eyes can gloss over and you know you looked at each individual word in the chapter, but you're not quite sure that you actually read any of it. And before you know it, you're at the end and you don't know what you read, but in your head you've composed an email. Or, or you, you, you have figured out what you're going to have for dinner, or you're gonna, you've made plans for the next day. That you, you've read it, but you haven't, your mind doesn't engage because it's seemingly pretty uneventful stuff. Um, and this, this phenomenon, it's something that we all fall into. Even as pastors, when we do a series on a book, um, Ezra 2 is probably one that usually gets skipped over. Ezra 1, we need the foundation. We, there's, there's amazing things that God does, and we want to continue with the story. So, so let's not get bogged down in the details of Ezra chapter 2. But last week, I left you with a challenge. I left you with a challenge to, to see if over the course of seven days, you could slog through Ezra chapter 2. Did anybody get there? Did anybody make it? All right, here we go. I got some, I told you I'd have prizes for you. So if you did it, raise your hand. All right, we got prizes. There's one behind you there. I, oh, that's a little, oh, that was a better throw than I thought. Whew, I thought, gonna, and all right, we got one here. Who else got, all right, Tom got one. All right, they're smarties because you're the smart ones. There you go, you got one. All right, look at the kids who are involved here. This is great. All right, Theo, I don't know that you read it, buddy, but I'm going to trust that you're being honest. And I got lots of smarties, so we're good. Drake, did you really read it? 
All right, all right, there you go. Who else? I saw some hands over here. Oh, my mom way at the back. All right. Eve got one. All right, anybody over here? This is where the honest people sit. Oh, and Zach at the back. All right. Ah, there we go. All right, well, congratulations if you made it through, through the book of, of Ezra chapter 2. Um, it was certainly a, a read um, to, to get through. Um, but, and I think that, that while, but I think that while we may not get this amazing story, we may not get this, this, this story of, of, wow, what an amazing tale. And it's not particularly poetic or beautiful where we read through it and we read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. You know, they're not going to get a, a, a tattoo of a verse from Ezra chapter 2 on your arm. You know, it's not this beautiful, beautiful text that we read. But I still think, and I believe, and I've got a sermon to prove it, um, that I think there are some things that we can take out of this chapter as we read through it. And so today, what I want to talk about as we move through Ezra chapter 2 is, don't worry, we are not going to read Ezra 2 in its entirety. So, so don't, don't worry, uh, that's, that's not where we're headed. But I'm just going to highlight a couple of spots and places through this. Because what I think we can discover as we move through the text in Ezra chapter 2, is that we can discover... I believe, what it takes for God to work in us. That as we look at what the, God was doing in the people in, in Judah as they were looking to return home, I believe that there's some lessons that we can pull out to discover as, as we look to rebuild our lives, as we look to see the Lord work in our lives and rebuild us and rebuild our church, we can look and go, these are some things that, that God was doing in them or needed to happen inside of them, and then take that and see in our own lives exactly what they are. And so to see the first one, we need to start at the beginning and talk about what this chapter even is. Um, we talked about last week, Ezra chapter 1, and we see this incredible story where God is preparing a way to move his people from captivity under the Persians in Babylon to bring back home. And we read in, in Ezra 1.1 that God moves in the heart of King Cyrus, an unbeliever, a pagan king, a man who fancied himself to be God, to create a mandate for the people of Judah to leave. But not just to leave, but to leave with everything, or at least as much as they could give them in order to to. to begin this rebuilding that the, the King Cyrus will say, God has placed it on my heart to send the people home that they would build a temple for God back home. And so he sends them with valuable materials, livestock and temple articles that were taken in the original conquering of Jerusalem. And then we see at the end of chapter, chapter 1, starting in verse 5, that, that the people decide it's time to move. And chapter 2 is that movement. It, 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 the list begins in verse 2 by naming the leaders. And what follows are many people, thousands of them, upping and leaving to work towards God's temple being restored. Verses 2 through 61 list all those who make the hugely successful move from Babylon to, to Jerusalem. And if, if this long list of names and numbers can be so difficult to get through... We can add the one thing that is sure to make anything fun, math. 
that if the long list of names wasn't enough, let's do some math, too. You know, this is a your love and church. I said to Crystal this morning, I won't be offended if you fall asleep after she had had to spend Friday night here at church. I won't be offended if you fall asleep either. Um, as, as we're doing names and math, I mean, it's a wonderful recipe for an exciting sermon. But if we look at the sheer numbers of people who travel from Babylon to Jerusalem, it's just under 50,000 people. Now, Airdrie's population is just over 70,000 people, or at least it was the last time I could find numbers for it. So what happens in Ezra chapter 2 would amount to most of the population of Airdrie moving out of the city en masse in one day. Imagine the chaos. Imagine the traffic. Imagine just the sheer insanity of a a U-Haul truck at every single house and everybody's trying to get out of there at the same time and the gas station lineups and the the lineups at the convenience stores and at Wendy's and all just as, as everybody all at once says it's time to go. And 50,000 people all at once pack up everything they own and it's time to go. And they're not, and and, and what we have to remember as we move through this chapter and as we move through the book of Ezra, we, we remember it now and we're going to see it. They're not returning home to to their houses that are furnished and ready to go. They're not returning home to to a temple that's that's ready for worship. It had been destroyed 70 years ago and sat destroyed for 70 years. They're returning to months and months, maybe years of hard manual labor to rebuild, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to to rebuild their lives. Yes, in one sense, these people are returning home. But so very few of them have actually known Jerusalem as their home. And they're returning to a pile of rubble. They go because they want to see the temple built. And they go because they're not afraid of the hard work. And that's point one. They're not afraid of the hard work that's ahead of them. See, rebuilding a life, rebuilding a temple, rebuilding a home, rebuilding a church, it's hard work. They were not returning to a miraculously rebuilt city. And I think this this can highlight for us sometimes something that we can have a disconnect almost in the language that we use. That sometimes we, we pray for a miracle and get discouraged when the miracle looks like work. See, what we see here is God was absolutely through incredible power and might and strength, God was miraculously rebuilding the city. But what that miracle didn't look like was bibbidi-bobbidi-boop and all of the blocks and the rocks and everything just floated up and there was sparkles and lights and everything just kind of came together and, and the people just watched as this, this thing was rebuilt in front of their eyes through, through a miracle. What we see here is God is no less performing a miracle, but he's performing a miracle through these people. But it, and it was a miracle that was going to require some hard work. 
Now, to bring this to us today, what does that mean for us? If God wants to rebuild you, if, you, if you're looking at your life and saying, God, I need, I need this to be rebuilt. I need, I need to see a move of you in my life. I, I need to see you change me. It's not necessarily what this shows us. It's not necessarily going to go like bibbidi-boppidi-boop-better-brad. But that sometimes, most of the time, it's going to be work. It's going to be hard work. And for us to be rebuilt, for God to do his work in us and in his church, we need to not be afraid of the hard work that it's going to take to see it done. That we sometimes get confused with the work of God and think it's just something that happens to me. And one day I go to bed feeling one way, and the next morning I wake up and everything's changed. And God can do that. And there, there we see stories in the Bible where God does that. We, we see, see that in the book of Ezra with King Cyrus. God just spoke to him and he did it. But sometimes the miracle isn't in the blocks coming together. Sometimes the miracle in is, is us being there to put the blocks together. Now, apart from just the amazing, amazing picture of the what and the why and the how of what's going on, they're, they're in Ezra chapter 2, a couple of parts of this list that show us some really interesting things that we can take away. So there's a couple specific points I want to highlight. So verses 3 through 35, they lift off, list off all of the family groups, but then after that, we read of the priests. Verse 36 says this, The priests, the descendants of Jedariah, through the family of Jeshua, 973. Of Immer, 1,052. Of Pasher, 1,247. And of Harim, 1,017. So there's four, there's four families, there's four clans where the priests are coming from. And if you add all of those numbers up together, you get a number that's about 4,300. Which, comparatively... To the number of people coming back out of exile is actually a really large number. Just about one in ten people who are coming back from exile are priests, are, are people that are, are going to be working in the temple, doing the work of the Lord. One in ten are the pastors in, inside of this community. Why so many? Well, I would guess that there was this group of people that had lived their lives in exile away from their ability to use the gifts that God had given them. They couldn't function the way God had created them to, but they knew they needed to be a part of this temple being rebuilt as priests because that new temple rebuilt with a rebuilt altar and as public worship was, of God was allowed in the community again, they would be able to serve in the way they were created to. That they knew, they, they knew in their heart, I am a priest, but I can't be a priest here. But now suddenly the door was open for them to be able to, to serve and to be all that God had created them to do. And so they said, I'm in. 
Let's go. Let's go get this thing rebuilt. Then finally I can be all that God has wanted me to be, all that God created me to be. And I think the question this poses for us is, do we have the same desire to, to serve the Lord with the gifts and the talents that we've been given? The, the Lord has given each of us gifts for the building of his church. We should long to use these gifts in his service. And that longing to, to see my gifts used to build the kingdom of God shouldn't be a weight. And it shouldn't be something that's just, uh, They asked for volunteers again. Shoot. All right. It should be something that gives us life and purpose. God has given each one of us a purpose in him. And it's not disconnected from the role that we play inside the body of Christ. Your purpose in life will extend beyond the body, but it will also extend into the body. How can I serve the Lord in order to build his church? When that's our attitude, we take the focus off ourselves and onto the Lord's purposes. And, and we discover what it means to serve others, to be this in the service of our, of our God. And that's what we see in these priests. People willing to go to great lengths to serve God in his church. They get on with that by the task of, of using their gifts. But there's another group of people that come right after this that I want to I talk about for a second that, that help, will help us understand this service and pro, this idea of service, but also probably shed, shed, shed some light on ourselves and, and how we can, can see service. Because remember, one in ten people were priests. There was a lot of priests. But immediately following the priests, it talks about the Levites. And they're who we're going to read about in verse 40. Levites essentially function as the priest's assistant. That, that, that was their role, was that they, the, the priests oversaw the, the ministry of the temple, and the Levites came in to facilitate the ministry of the temple. So we've read 4,300 priests. Uh, verse 40. The Levites, the descendants of Jeshua and of Kadamel, of the line of whoever that is, 74. So 4,300 priests, 74 assistants to the priests. You do the math and it works out to a ratio of one Levite to every 58 priests. One out of 10 priests, or one out of 10 people is a priest, but there's only one assistant to every 58 priests. Those are going to be some busy guys. Those are going to be some very busy people. But what we see here is that there's 74 people who are still willing to work. Here are, here are these servant-hearted people ready to do all manner of jobs behind the scenes. We can see that the, the, the same servant, the same servant-heartedness again and again as we look at the list of temples, uh, temple servants and the servants of Solomon. Verse 58 tells us there's 392 of them. The temple servants assist the Levites. as You can find that in, in Ezra chapter 8. So we've got the Levites and then we've got the, 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 or we've got the priests, then we've got the Levites, and we've got the temple servants underneath them. And they're responsible for doing all of the most menial tasks around the table. 
In my book, it's the Levites who, who serve the priests and the temple servants who assist the Levites. These are the unsung heroes of this chapter. And we don't know their names. We just know the families that they came from. Everything that these people did was out of the public view. They were prepared to do the most ordinary, basic, behind-the-scenes tasks. They weren't after status or recognition. They, they weren't out to promote themselves or push themselves forward. They were just happy to serve. And the church needs people like this if we're ever going to be everything we're called and created to be. In fact, this is a picture of what everybody in the church should be like in the way that we should all see ourselves and in, in the place in the church. That we serve a God who said, I came to serve, not to be served. And this highlights the second place our hearts and our spirits need to be for God to be able to work in us. That is, and remember, what we're talking about here is, is what does it look like for the Lord to work in our lives? And so as we explore this, what, is, what, what can we take away from this is that serving is an important aspect of the Lord working. That they're not, they're not disconnected from one each, each other. And, and our attitude towards serving the Lord is that, that, that their attitude was they were willing to serve even in places that got no credit. And sometimes in our lives, the first part of that we can, we can totally jive with. I'd be willing to serve. But when we're asked to serve in a place that gets no credit... That's a tougher one. Because I did all of this and nobody noticed. I, 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 I spent my day doing that and nobody cared. Nobody knows that it made a difference. And that can be hard for us. Sometimes it's tough to get in on the ground floor. Sometimes we think, uh, let, let me go to something a little more established. Let, let me do something when, when kind of the, the, the groundwork has been done. Then, then let's, let's, let's come in. But what we see here is, is, and the, that's modeled for us in these people's lives is that the, there were people who were coming back and their, their response to this situation was like, I'll sweep. If that's what it takes, let me sweep out the rubble. Let me be a, a, a rock collector. Let me be the one who cleans the toilet. What it, whatever it might be that, that we see the, this, this, this picture of these people who said, like, I'm good. Whatever you need me to do, I'm good. Now, the next place I want to take a look at is, is a bit of an interesting anomaly that shows up in verse 59. And, and this is actually a really interesting little couple of verses that we can connect here. And then it, it says this in verse 59. The following came up from the towns of, of Tel-Mela, Tel-Harsha, Karub, Adon, and Immer. But they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. We have this really interesting note that some of the people who were released to go back to Judah were these people who came out of captivity with the people of Judah, but their, their family history was a little bit muddy. 
They couldn't show that their families had, had come from Judah, but they were also considered part of the people taken into captivity. So who were these people? And where did they come from? Well, what's most likely is that these people were, were descendants of prisoners of war taken captive during King David's reign. And you can read about what Solomon does to, to sort of bring these people into society in 1 Kings chapter 9. Once slaves taken against their will, now years later, their names show up listed among God's people. At some point, these people who had, who had been conquered and brought in, they had, had made a decision to embrace the truth for themselves and become followers of God. And then when a chance to serve God's kingdom arose, they, well, they didn't see it as a chance to, to skip town and get out. That, hey, they included us in letting us go. Let's go home. Let's get out of here before they notice. But, but they, they saw th this time and that they had become part of a people and when given the chance to go and follow and, and, and rebuild God's kingdom, they jumped at the chance. They weren't there by birth, but by faith, they were going back to rebuild God's kingdom. Now behind these stories, we can imagine many wonderful stories, or behind these verses, we can imagine many wonderful stories. Real people who were far from God have been brought to the, to the Lord through the most tragic circumstances. And now, years later, whole families have turned to the Lord. And wonderfully, God has moved in their hearts that they commit to putting the Lord and his kingdom first and wanting to rebuild the temple. This is, this is an amazing picture of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. There, there were these people who were outsiders. They were not part of the kingdom of God. They were not part of the family of God. But circumstances brought them there. And they make a choice in their life and say, I'm going to work for the kingdom of God. I am a part of this family now. But there's an interesting note that's sad here. But it's also really informative for us to understand what it means to have God work in our lives and what it means for us to follow God. What we see a couple verses later is it sort of gives us some details on, on the people. Tells us that these people who, who couldn't trace their family back properly, they wanted to serve as priests. But they couldn't. They couldn't show their family records as Israelites, and this disqualified them from serving in that role. Verse 62 tells us, they searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. These people wanted to serve as priests. But there was a huge question mark that hung over them. Because the problem for them is that God's word is very clear and God's instruction were very clear that only those descended from the tribe of Levi could serve as priests. That was the rule. You had to be a descendant of Levi in order to hold this position. And in the past... There had been times where this rule wasn't particularly enforced very well. 
And if you want to read in 1 Kings chapter 12 or 13, you can read about the consequences that Jeroboam, or that came from Jeroboam making a compromise on this. That God, God's word, God had said, this is my qualification in order to do this. And we see that when, when the people, or when, when the king didn't do that, God had consequences for them. Now this thing, this kind of thing, can be really hard for us. Can be awkward for us. After all, they wanted to serve. Why not let them serve? Who cares ultimately where they're from? They've committed themselves to this. They want to do this. Why should where they're from really matter? We may not always understand the whys and the how comes of verses like this. Why did you have to be a Levite? Because God said. Ultimately, the, there, there is no other reason for it than that. It's because the, that's the instruction God said. But we can see that as God was bringing his people back and he was looking to rebuild him, there needed to be a serious commitment to obeying his word. Here, this involved following God's way of sacrifice, which God had instructed was only to be performed by those who descended from Levi. And so, unfortunately, if you can't show that you're a descendant of Levi, I'm sorry, but you can't serve in that role. Now, what does that mean for us? I am not a descendant of Levi. So we need to, to have that discussion about whether, no, but, but what does this mean for us? What this means for us is that as we look for God to, to rebuild us as people, as I look for the Lord to work in my life, as, as I say, God, come and work in me, is that for God's work to be done in my life, we need to be holding fast and true to the word of God as our guide. That as we look to, to see the Lord work, it's important that I understand what it means for the Lord to work. And that I'm not praying or asking God or, or inviting myself into situations where God has said, don't do that. Not allowing our beliefs or our theology, or our ways of viewing the world, or our place in the world, or our sin, or whatever it may be, to be compromised because society pressures us, our uncomfortableness of what the word of God may mean for me, or my friends, or my family, or whatever it may be that causes our desire to compromise it. The word of God tells me this, and I don't like it. Well, if I want the Lord to work in me, I need to bow my knee to the word of the Lord and say, God, I don't like this. So here's something else you got to work on in my life for me to, to change how I feel about what it is that you've said. See, we're not... The, the people then and us today, we're not permitted to change the rules. God had said that priests must come from a specific family line. And if these people weren't from that line, as hard as it may be to fully get the word of God, it's still our ultimate authority. And because of that, 
the leaders had to say, I'm sorry, but you, you can't fill that role. Now, the last couple of verses I want to highlight for us are verses uh, 64 through 69. And it just gives us a little bit of an insight into some of the more specifics. And then one last thing to draw out. 64 through 69 say, The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their uh, 7,337 male and female slaves. And they also had 200 male and female singers. They had uh, 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 6,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. These verses summarize this remarkable chapter. Over 42,000 people, not to mention the horses, mules, camels, and donkeys, are traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem. And if there's any doubt about their commitment to rebuild the temple, we get to see again the choice that the people of God make towards this rebuilding. They put their money where their mouth is. Last week we talked about how so often we have no idea. I think it was last week. Maybe it was another time. But we talked about how we don't know what this is. Anybody have any idea what 61,000 derricks of gold are? I didn't. I don't know what that means. We read that and go, I, I, I assume it's a lot. Because it would be weird to highlight how little it was in the context of this list of all of this stuff. Um, the gold that they gave weighed just over 1,100 pounds. Um, at, a, at, at today's exchange rate, it's worth about $15 million. Now, there's two expressions that I love that come out of this that I think are informative for us as we understand what, what it means to serve and to give to the Lord. The, the two expressions, the first comes in verse 68, where it says uh, that they gave free will offerings. See, they don't give out a duty or to keep the law or just what they're told to give. This, this is freely given. This is a work of gratitude. Most of these exiled people, they've never seen Jerusalem before. Now they're there. And they show their thankfulness by saying, God, I, I'm going to give some more to you. And the second expression I love is in verse 69, because it puts so much of this in context. According to their ability, they gave. Some are able to make a larger contribution and others not as much. But as they all gave what they can, it adds up to this incredibly staggering amount of gold that will be used to rebuild this temple. And I want to highlight for you here as we talk about this, there's no distinction made for those who gave more or comparison to those who gave less. It doesn't say, and everyone gave according to what they were able. But we just want to take a moment and or acknowledge the following people who were really able. Or it doesn't say the following people gave a lot of money and we wanted to make sure that they were credited with really carrying the mail here. So here's a list of their names. 
Ezra 2 has no problem listing names. But they don't hear. But what we take away from this for us today is that the people were willing to give whatever they had to see God's rebuilding be done. See, some of the family heads gave financially, and that's what's highlighted here. But everyone gave something. Who knows how much some of these people knew about rebuilding a temple? Probably not much. We've got people in our midst who know how to build things. Paul knows how to build things. John knows how to build. There are people here who know how to build things. And then there's people like me. They can tell me what to do. But if you said, Brad, you're in charge of rebuilding the temple. I've got a willing heart. But we ain't going to have a temple. I, I don't know how to rebuild a temple. But everybody said, I'm in. Let me do what I can. And so I'll come and I'll swing a hammer and, and I'll do something as long as you tell me what I'm supposed to hit with it. But it wasn't about, here's the people who, who gave the most. Everybody gave what they had. They gave what they could. If they were talented, they gave their talent. If they were willing, they gave their willingness. If they had money, they gave their money. If they just had nothing or very little, they gave what they had. And it just everybody gave what they were able. Five centuries later, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus stands in this rebuilt temple. And it says him and his disciples, they were kind of watching what's going on. And, and many rich people are throwing large amounts of money into the offering plate. But it says that there's a, there's a poor widow there who, who puts in just a couple of pennies. And Jesus notices and, and commends her to the disciples. He says to, to his followers, guys... I just want to show you what happened here in case you missed it. But she just gave more than everybody else did. And, and the disciples are, are obviously confused by this because no, she didn't. But Jesus says, those people, they're giving out of their wealth. She gives out of her poverty, putting in everything she has. So while in worldly terms, it doesn't amount to much. In God's economy, she's, she's giving more than all the others. See, our giving to the Lord isn't measured by what we put in. It's not the cost of the gift, but it's the heart with which it's given. See, the, the, those who gave, the, the, the rich folks in the temple, they could have given what she gave. It wasn't like, well, they had too much, so they couldn't do that. But they, they gave easily what they could afford. And she said, like these people, I'm just going to give according to what I'm able. We're to give thankfully and sacrificially according to our ability in the Lord. And of course, in the context of this passage and in the context of this discussion, this connects to our finances. But it's not just that. It connects to our, our time and our talent. That, that sometimes we, we know we don't have a lot to offer in something. But hey, I've, what I've got, you can have. 
It's not about the most, the best, the strongest, or the seemingly most impactful. The whole of Ezra 2 leaves us in no, with no doubt that these people are making the building of God's temple their priority. And from the lives and the stories that are told and implied here in these verses, we can look and see four things for us that we need in our lives as we look to have the Lord work in us. First, they are united to leave Babylon to return to their ruined city for hard work. They weren't afraid of the hard work in front of them. Next, they knew that they were going to serve using the gifts and abilities that God had given to them, and even in places where there was no recognition or status. Third, they committed to obeying God's word above everything else. And fourth, they gave of their talents, their time, and their money, whatever they had as much as they could, to see the temple being built. This is the heart that leads to the Lord's work in our lives. This is the heart that leads to God being able to do his work of setting us free in order to rebuild us. That as we look to have the Lord work in our lives, this is the heart we need to have. God, whatever, I'm not afraid of the work that you might ask me to do. God, whatever I've got, it's yours. God, I am, I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to do whatever it is you need me to do to work in me, even if it's something that nobody else ever sees. God, whatever it is that you need from me, it's yours. And then we find ourselves in a position where the Lord can come and work in us and through us. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we recognize that there are times in our lives where we need you to work, where, where things have seemingly fallen apart where things have seemingly gone off the tracks, where things have, have seemingly gone off the rails. God, whether for like the Israelites it's, or for, for the people of Judah here, where everything has come off the rails and it's a result of sin and it's a result of disobedience and, and we still find ourselves at this place. Or God, just sometimes the circumstances of life leads us to a place where God, we just need you to do something. God, I thank you that even in a, even in a book like Ezra 2, where, where we can see, or where it can be so easy to see nothing. God, I thank you that even in a book like Ezra 2, God, you've shown us a roadmap to opening our hearts and our lives to the work of the Lord in us. God, that as we, we've opened our hearts, or you, you've given us a roadmap to, to open ourselves up to, as we say, God, would you come and work in me? Would you rebuild me? Would you work in my life? God, I thank you that even in a book like Ezra 2, God, we can see the goodness of you at work as you say, okay, here's, here's where we need to come to so that we can, can open ourselves up. God, I thank you that even in the most moments where we're the most discombobulated, where we're the most fallen apart, where, where we need you the most, God, I thank you that we're never far beyond your reach, that there's always a path home, that there's always a road home, that there's always the opportunity for us to be rebuilt in you. And so God, I pray that you would help us to, to live as a people committed to you and committed to your work in our lives. God, I thank you that, that you have given us your word and your spirit I thank you that you work through us and in us. And God, I thank you that you're never.
finished with us. And so, God, as we go forward from this place, God, may you continually do the work in each one of our lives of rebuilding, restoring, and reclaiming us to be everything that you've called us to be. We love you, and we look forward to everything you have for us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God of Abraham. Thanks for listening to this message from Hillside Church. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Hillside Church, there are a couple places you can go. Hillsideairdrie.ca is our website. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hillside Airdrie. You can also look us up on YouTube and find all of our messages on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to connect to the pastoral team at Hillside, you can do that through our website, hillsideairdry.ca, and click on About Us in the main menu, and then click on Our Pastors. We're so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Hillside Church, we are a family, not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. As family we go. God from age to age, though the earth may pass away, your word remains.